Podcastle episode 142 for February 1st, 2011. Abandonware by On Owomoyela. Rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. They tell you when you're making a speech to start off with a joke. So, what did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. Okay, that's mostly just a joke I like, but it wasn't totally random. I thought of it because I was thinking of the Jomo Temple. Back in the late 90s, some monks at a Zen Buddhist temple in Kyoto decided to hold a yearly memorial service for lost data every October 24th, and they built a website, the Jomo Temple, as an internet memorial to deleted data. It's easy to laugh at. It seems so silly. But think about how important information is. How incredibly essential it is to the way we live that people in the past could pass huge amounts of complex information on to us. People they had never met. People they couldn't even imagine existing except in the most abstract way. The way information is recorded and accessed changes with technology. Clay tablets and writing are technology just as much as the printing press or the computer. Or the LP. Just myself, I have stacks of LPs with music that... Well, some of it's been digitized by now, but a fair amount of it hasn't and may never be. Turntables are rare enough these days. What happens when they're gone entirely? What happens when a format changes and the ability to read the old format is lost? What data might seem insignificant to us that might, in the future, be important or even essential? It's worth thinking about. I don't know if that October 24th ceremony still happens, but sadly, or perhaps instructively, the Jomo Temple is no longer to be found. It's vanished along with countless other bits of data. This might be something to ponder and perhaps take a lesson from, or it might simply be irony. Still, there's something resonant in the Jomo Temple's mission, and maybe it adds a little pathos to that moment when your computer asks you, are you sure you want to send mynovel.rtf to the recycle bin? Today's story is Abandonware by An Owamoyela. An graduated from the University of Iowa with a degree in linguistics and fell into a career in web application development almost on accident. Say graduated the Clarion West Writers Workshop in 2008, and here fiction has appeared in a number of venues such as Shizine, Fantasy Magazine, and Apex Magazine, and is forthcoming from Asimov's. You can find here on the web at on.owamoyela.net. Abandonware was first published in Fantasy Magazine in June 2010. It's also forthcoming as part of the year's best science fiction, edited by Rich Horton, due for an early 2011 release. You probably know already, but in case you don't. Abandonware is computer software which has been abandoned by its creators. There's no support available anymore, or it's hard to tell where the copyright lies. It's read by science fiction and fantasy author Chris Renaga, who makes his home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Chris graduated from Clarion West and has stories forthcoming from Cemetery Dance, the magazine of bizarro fiction, and the anthology Up Jumped the Devil. You can find him on the web at www.christopherrenaga.com. Abandonware by An Owomoyela My sister Andrea died in a bicycle car collision when I was 16. My uncle came in to help Dad and me go through her stuff, weaning us from box after box sent to Goodwills or donated to advocacy raffles, 
but Dad and I both kept things. Dad kept her high school soccer medals and her autographed copy of Neuromancer. I kept a case of zip disks, a zip drive, and the ancient Mac Quadra she used them on. I spent that weekend avoiding my father, who thought we needed a talk with a capital T, by setting up the Quadra on a corner of my desk, which turned into half my desk and most of my legroom. I spent hours unsnarling cables and coaxing life into a machine obsolete since the late 90s. Why? Andy had some overclocked alienware monstrosity with aspirations of becoming Skynet for her serious work, but the Quadra was her baby. While Dad talked through my door about coming to terms with our grief and coming together as a family and letting go, I was bent over with the edge of the desk cutting into my chest, holding a flashlight in my mouth, trying to screw the monitor's cord into the tower. Letting go was giving up. I had to get back in touch. I sat at my desk, feet jammed between the Quadra's tower and my Dell's, window cracked to let in the wet air. It had been raining. Andy loved how the air smelled after it rained. I didn't smell anything. I was just looking through Andy's zip disks, thinking about her. I opened one case and a disk fell out, dropping between the wheels on my chair. It had been stuck between the pages, not fit into one of the pockets, and that was weird considering Andy. Whatever the original label said had been worked over in Sharpie, and the new label read only, Burn this disc. Obviously, she hadn't. Andy was always open with me, ten years older and thinking she could tell me the secrets of life. She wanted me to tell her about girlfriends and classes and any juvenile delinquency I got into. And she told me about alcohol and sex and everything Dad didn't want to talk about like the time she got busted sneaking into a topless bar. I couldn't think what she'd want to burn. I turned on the zip drive, booted up the computer, and stuck the disk in. It was an early drive and an early disk, and it made a lot of noise for 100 megs, but it worked pretty well. Andy kept it fixed up. The disk was named Erase Me. It had one file on it, a 77-megabyte document named Selden.crn. Dad knocked on my door. David, are you busy? I'm a bit busy, Dad. I wasn't paying attention, not even to the way my shoulders nodded up. With Dad, sometimes if you just repeat a few of his phrases, he'll think you're having a conversation. I was thinking we could have the night out. Two of us. Go down to Laszlo's and have a couple of burgers. And talk, he didn't add. A Google search on the computer that could handle browsers, that could handle the internet, that is to say, not the Quadra, told me that .crn files belong to an obscure little program called CodeRunner. Code is in C-O-D-E, but also R-O-A-D, without the R. Its logo was a genericized cartoon of the blue bird I loved until I was seven, before I started empathizing with the coyote more. Not hungry! I said. Leave me alone, I didn't. I poked around on the hard drive, which was bare except for BB Edit, Chess, Lemmings, and a folder full of bitmaps. I flipped open the disk case and ran through the disks, digging through her stuff. I could forget how much I missed her. Sort of. Not really.
We can go later? Dad offered. Yeah, maybe. Andy was brilliant, and not just in the ten years older way. She tried to hook me early. Programming, her job. Soccer, her favorite weekend activity. Science fiction, the only book she'd touch. None of it took, but I can still explain relational databases while scoring a goal, and then I can explain the three laws of robotics, if you're still interested. Andy was also an organization freak. Her zip disks were color-coded by topic. Programs were alphabetized. Backups were ordered by date. There was an empty space in the programs where Erase Me should have been, back in the QRST section. I'll be downstairs if you want to talk, Dad said. I didn't want to talk. I was pretty sure I'd never want to talk. Code Runner was stuck between Claris Works and the Exile Trilogy games, and I popped the disc into the drive and started the installer. Okay, Dad. Later. Code Runner installed, and I injected that disc and put Erase Me back in. I copied Selden.CRN into its folder and opened it up. All it gave me was a black window with green text, Matrix style. Nothing else. I thought maybe it wanted me to register, even though the Quadra wasn't connected to the Internet. Your full name. I typed in David Elliot Knowles. Zip code. I put that in. It asked me a few more questions. Then the date. Then a number from one to five. Then it said, Don't go to school tomorrow. And quit. Pretty pointless. I opened up BBEdit and opened Selden.CRN, which acted like a folder and gave me a list of files. One of the files was named choices.crn in a subfolder called includes. So I looked at that. It had a simple array with five elements, numbered 1 through 5 instead of 0 through 4. Good luck, bad luck, friends, family, miscellaneous. I'd hit 2 when I tested the program. Bad luck. I ran the program again filled out all my information, and then hit one instead. This time it said, Check the street gutter two houses down. And quit again. I poked around a bunch of the other include slash files to see what I could understand. It had been a long time since I programmed anything. When Andy started coaching me on how to make a tic-tac-toe game in Visual Basic, I'd stopped paying attention and never picked it up again. After a while... I started going cross-eyed over the symbols in Selden, so I powered down both of the computers. I'd poke my head in on Andy on a normal day, bother her about new movies or ask her if she wanted to put in a racing game. That day, I sat for a moment, not knowing what to do. I went downstairs thinking I could use some time out of the house. I'd forgotten that Dad was downstairs. He was pouring himself coffee from the coffee machine in the living room, ignoring the evening news droning in the background. I almost ran back to my room, but Dad saw me. David, he said, sit down. He tried to sound like he was just suggesting it. I went to the couch and sat, toying with the loose threads on the armrest covers. Dad sat in the big overstuffed chair under the lamp across from me, catty-corner from the TV, which was talking about a mining accident someplace that wasn't America. I don't like talking about things. 
I didn't want to talk about that, but I had to. It went something like this. He'd say something, everything jammed into past tense. How she was brilliant. How she used to make mild, deep nachos. How I must have her favorite memories, too, didn't I? I'd admit that maybe I did. He'd say, tell me. He'd lean forward and look at me like he was about to break down, and I'd look away. Not talking made him talk. I had to talk to get away from that. I told him that she took me to a baseball game, and I didn't care about the game, but it had the best ballpark dogs. I admitted that she wrote a new ending to Interstellar Pig because I didn't like the one in the book. Hers wasn't as good. I liked it better. Andrea should have been there to get me out. Andrea was my sister. Dad wasn't. I couldn't share Andrea being my sister with him, but he kept asking. He kept trying to share Andrea being his daughter with me, like I could reminisce about her in a baby jumper hanging on to Mom, or like I'd want to if I'd could. But the time Dad let me go, and I headed out the door, I was shaking, and I didn't want to be. Andy would notice if I was in a bad mood, and she'd come play Quake 3 or Red Faction with me. Dad was clueless as to video games, as I was clueless as to him. Andrea could have noticed that. I hated to talk and run interference. Now, it was just me and Dad and no way out. I went around the block twice, down to the park, back up to the roundabout before remembering the message in the Selden program. I knew it was a stupid thing to do, fortune cookie advice for the internet age. But I checked the house two down from mine anyway. Nothing interesting. I went two houses over in the other direction, sorting through stuff in the gutter with my toe of my sneaker until I saw something papery and leaned over to grab it. Crumpled under a drift of sticks and leaves, soaked through and dirty, was a $20 bill. I don't want to go to school tomorrow, I told Dad when I came back in. Dad looked at me with a sad smile. No one would make you go to school this soon after the accident, he said, making me feel stupid for bringing it up. How was I supposed to know? The last family death had been my grandfather on my mother's side, who I'd met all of twice. Before that, it had been Mom, who died when I was three. Dad and Andy remember her. I never did. They don't tell you about this in the school's attendance policy. Or they did, and I didn't pay attention. So I stayed home. Dad went to work. I ate the frozen lasagna someone had left for us and played on my computer and sometimes lurked in Andrea's old doorway, watching light fall through the window and creep across her too empty floor. I wanted her to explain something to me. Her program, or dad, either one. All I'd ever had to do was ask. Sometime after five, Dad knocked on my door and, without even waiting, pushed it open. I was going to give him an earful. Maybe. I wasn't much for arguments, especially not with Dad. But Dad looked shell-shocked, like he had when he'd met me at the door and made me sit down and told me that Andrea had died less than two blocks from our door. There's been an accident on Rand Street. That look was toned down, but I recognized it. David, I thought you should know, he said. West High is closed for a while. There was a bomb. Andrea could have explained the look that went across my face, 
parser error. A bomb? A cherry bomb or something, Dad said. It went off in the boys' locker room. There was one kid taken to the emergency room. I just thought you should know that it's closed. There was a bomb, I said. That's as far as my brain would go. In the locker room? I think they have someone in custody, Dad responded. I looked back at the Dell, then at the Quadra. I'm gonna... Thanks, I said. I wasn't sure what else to say. Could you? Yeah, Dad said. I just wanted you to know. At least he got it that it was time to leave. He walked out toward the stairs without pushing the door all the way closed. Don't go to school. I went to Google News and typed in my school and city, and it was already up on half a dozen websites. Homemade bomb, boys locker room, 205, right at the start of fifth period, which was physical recreation for me. I didn't need to read past that. I went straight back to Andy's Quadra. The include slash files made no sense to me, but this time I went into the folder called core slash. It had one file, underscore mancy.crn, which took up 76 of the 77 megabytes of the Selden program. Failing to recognize that 76 megabytes is probably enough space for every American novel in plain text, I opened it. Then I had to wait 13 minutes for it to open, pacing because the quadra wouldn't hurry. Underscore mancy.crn started off easy. Big blocks of comment text talking about date started, date completed, copyrighted Andrea Sophia Knowles, revisions, bug history. I scrolled past that to get at the code, then wished I hadn't. It was gibberish to me. The one thing I could identify was a function library, but even knowing what it was, I couldn't make any sense of it. It called double and triple variables, set up regular expressions which took up hundreds of lines, had functions so deeply recursive in such a complex net of file requires and cross-references that the entire thing was one big knot. It could have been a map of the universe. I couldn't tell. Nine minutes in and I felt like I was choking on the code. The logic was too dense and my mind was turning into a Klein bottle following it. Andrea had a false Klein bottle one of her boyfriends gave her. Blue blown glass and I couldn't figure it out any more than I could figure out this. I went online, on my Dell, and searched for .crn guides, but the only things I found were a bunch of ancient Usenet groups. No help there. Maybe it was coincidence, some really weird, freaky coincidence, that it just so happened to spew that message the one day my boring, quiet school got interesting. And maybe it wasn't. Andy complained sometimes that you couldn't make random numbers with a computer program. Something about computers being logical and logic not being random. I had no idea if that applied to random chance, and she always spun it out to some theory about chaotic systems and the logical laws of physics, and at that point my eyes always glazed over. I wanted to be sure that I was being ridiculous. There was no way a program on a zip disk could predict the future. I just didn't know how to look into that. I really should have known by then not to go downstairs. The problem was, upstairs was just bedrooms and a bathroom, and my window wasn't made for climbing out of. I wanted out of the house. I don't think Dad, staring at the TV without really watching it, wanted to let me. 
He stood up when I came down, turning the TV off and setting the remote on its end table. Are you hungry? he asked. I was just about to boil up some spaghetti. I told him I wasn't. Why don't you come help me in the kitchen, he said. Maybe you'll work up an appetite. There was no way to get away. Dad made this sort of pasta sauce where you only simmered the tomatoes for a few minutes to keep them fresh. I was cutting tomatoes into squishy cubes, thinking about red being the color of blood and white being the color of both the cutting board and the background of the code program, and the program itself being thousands or millions of letters, numbers, symbols, totally without a matching metaphor in Dad's spaghetti dinner. And on a whim, I asked, Do you still miss Mom? Dad, who was crushing garlic, looked like I'd come up behind him and startled him. I haven't thought about her in a long time, he lied. I could tell he was lying because he's been a lousy liar my whole life. He used to tell us that cough medicine tasted yummy, like we wouldn't be able to tell as soon as we tasted it, like we wouldn't be wise to that line every time thereafter. I wanted to turn around and walk straight back to my room, shut the door on Dad and our shrinking family, and how hard it was just to talk to him. I think I managed a couple of words before I did, something about needing some time out and he could finish this without me, right? I sat at my computer and held on to my mouse and keyboard, and I thought, Dad wanted a nice nuclear family, didn't he? A wife, two kids, maybe a dog someday. Instead, they didn't get a second kid until ten years after the first one. Then Mom died. Then Andrea, until it was just the two of us. Just two, and every time Dad looked at me, like he was seeing the last person in his family not to die. It wasn't like I could do anything. Not like I could bring back the dead. Not like I could have known. Andy had to have known. She had a program that knew everything. I would check that every morning before I put on a shirt, if I had it. What sort of program warns me about a bomb threat? and that doesn't tell my sister not to ride her bike. Selden had to have known. Andy had to have known. Why did she want to burn that disc? I punched in Andy's demographics. That morning I'd overheard Dad calling the school and telling them that I was still in shock over Andy's death. Maybe I was. I missed her. Yeah, but I wasn't crying or screaming or anything. All I can remember was a dull ache and curiosity about her quadra, her pet projects, that code. I felt like she had part of her that she kept trying to share, and it was hidden in this computer. Part of her I'd never got to see because programming and soccer and science fiction were all like trigonometry, things I was good at but didn't enjoy. That's why I put in Andrea's information. I wanted to know what was going on between her and Selden. I selected friends first. Friends read, Everyone misses you, but it's over now. It quit. This time, I was glad. A bunch of Andy's friends had been at her funeral. A couple of her high school friends flew in. One of them wished she hadn't been cremated because she had a first serialization copy of The War of the Worlds in Pearson's Weekly. He would have let Dad bury her with. Of course, they missed her. And he was great. I tried something else. Miscellaneous. It's over now. 
Maybe there wasn't much you could tell to someone who ended up lying on the side of the road and died before the ambulances could get to her. Bad luck. There's nothing left. It's over now. Bad luck gave me the obvious answer. She was 28 and brilliant and riding her bike when a car came out of nowhere and hit her. Dumb luck. Bad luck. Good luck. It's okay. It's over now. That's when my hand started shaking. That line made it sound like a suicide, like something in her life had caught up to her and she ran straight into a Subaru to escape it, like we're going to be that grieving family on the news. Everybody knows the one, the family that says there was never any indication. She always seemed so happy. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to be told that by a secret, stupid computer program that had no way of knowing anything and still knew my sister better than I did. I didn't want it to know anything. I punched in three for family. You should have burned the disc. I kicked the power strip and both the computers went down. I shot back in my computer chair and jerked to a stop against my bed, both black monitors staring at me. You should have burned the disc. Three for family. Three for Dad trying to talk while I installed this. Three for me reading her handwriting in Sharpie on the label. Three for me. I should have burned the disc? Good luck. I could stick to good luck from now on, if it was even real. If Selden.CRN actually knew anything, and it wasn't just random words and a few coincidences, then I thought of the bomb in the locker room and how I could have been there. I thought of Andy and her insistence that nothing computerized was random. Bad luck. Someone was injured. I could have been. Burn this disc. Why didn't it just tell me to beware of the Ides of March? I rolled back over and flipped the power strip back on with my toe. I booted both my computers up and made myself open Selden again. For a long time... I just stared at the input box. After a few minutes, I wrote in my name. But the date I gave was the day that Andy died. I punched in three for family. Your sister loves you. I think that I was shaking again. I wrote in Andy's info for that day, her death day, and stopped on the prompt. Good luck? Bad luck? She died. Most of the answers seemed obvious, and some... I didn't want to know. I went with the one that I didn't want to know instead of the ones I already did. Good luck. A truly random chance is waiting just outside the door. Good luck, Red. Then for bad luck, it just said, Maybe predestination's not that bad. I wanted to punch through the monitor. I tried typing in, What do you want from me? And got an error. Index out of bounds as soon as I hit W. Same with zero, with six, for T, for tell me what you are. I closed all the code windows, shut the computer down, ran downstairs so I could deal with something that wasn't it, and ended up running back up with a bowl of spaghetti and a mumbled, Sorry, Dad, I just don't want to talk right now. Because I couldn't leave it alone. My eyes were burning. I told myself it was from onions. Dad never simmered them enough. I wanted to tear that program apart. I wanted to print out all those Usenet group pages, print out all that code, sit at my desk and go through it and learn it and make it tell me what it knew. It had to tell me, 
Computers weren't smarter than people. People programmed them. They were just better at crunching numbers. Sometime after my spaghetti was cold, Dad knocked on my door again. David, he said, I know you want to be alone, and it's all right that you take some time for that. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to solve this. Dad pushed open my door and saw me, and then he just walked in. He pulled my chair around to face him, and he sat down on the edge of the bed, and I hunched down. I didn't want him there. David, he said, turn off the computers, please. I didn't want to, but turning off the computers gave me a way not to look at him for a minute or so. We need to talk through this, he said, like there was a way to. If he'd known programming, maybe we could have talked through Selden, but Andy was dead. No logic, no reasoning, just dead. And what was I supposed to say about that? I don't want to, I said, and Dad's face tightened up. I wasn't the problem there. I wasn't the thing being impossible to solve. It's not healthy to keep everything inside of you, Dad said. I know this is horrible, and I wish I knew how to help you, but you and Andy always had it so together, he said. And Andy was the one who'd always had it together, and I was stuck here, between Selden and Dad, with no way to deal with either one. It didn't matter that I wasn't healthy or Dad couldn't help. What mattered was that I had to know why Andrea had a program that could tell the future. I had to know, and Andy wasn't there to tell me. And for a second it mattered more that she couldn't tell me than that she wasn't there. It was just for a second. Really. Just a second, and I caught myself. I wanted Andy back more than I wanted to understand this, but I was sitting there with my mouth open, and I must have been shaking or something because I remember Dad reaching over to me, and then I was crushed against his chest, crying. I really hadn't wanted to cry. He held on to me for I don't know how long. The black space behind my eyelids was warmer than the black window I'd been staring at, and the thump, thump, thump I couldn't block out, coming from Dad's heart, started blocking out the hum of the electricity in the room. I didn't know what I was doing. More than not knowing .crn programming, more than not knowing how logic and chance and the future fit together, I wanted Andrea back, and I couldn't have that, so I was getting in fights with a program she'd made. It didn't make sense to me. When Dad finally let me go, there was a wet patch on his shirt where my eyes had been. We sat for a while. We talked about nothing. He left me alone after that, staring at the blank screen of Andy's quadra. It had been supposed to make all this easier. I booted it up, feeling horrible for doing it. I opened up Selden, thinking I didn't want to. I wrote in my information, in the correct date. One for good luck. Trust that bad feeling. Five for miscellaneous. This time it thought for a while. I could hear the Quadra's hard drive struggling like I'd tried to install Doom on it, and it couldn't handle that at all. After a while, it gave me my answer. Goodbye, David. That night, I snuck out while Dad was sleeping and went out back to our fire pit. I was wearing my black Metallica hoodie and the cargo pants with white sneakers. I guess I blended in with the darkness anyways. There were stars out and a bit more than a half moon, so it wasn't hard to see. 
I took all the wet leaves and stuff out of the pit and cleared off the gravel around it. Then I put down the grate and some charcoal and a shoebox. The shoebox was full of shredded newspaper and matchbooks and some oil, whatever I thought would burn. And it had the zip disk. I wasn't out there in my suit or my dress shoes, but I wasn't sure people wore suits to cremations anyways. I poured some lighter fluid over everything and lit the charcoal. Then I crouched there and watched it all burn. It stank, and it smoldered, and it flared up when the matches caught and the oily smoke went up through the trees. It took a long time to burn down, and the zip disk wasn't gone like I'd hoped, but it was blackened and melted, which was enough. I dumped a bucket of water into the pit and stirred up the ashes. I snuck back to my room. On the way there, I stopped outside Dad's door. I heard him turn over on his bed. I heard him adjust the sheets. I didn't listen long. My Dell was asleep. The quadra hummed at me and I sat down, trashed the Selden program, and turned it off. Lots cleaner than the fire. Of course, it didn't feel the same. I changed in my pajamas and laid down, pulling the sheets up over my head. Andy had always been smarter than me. I never could get into her interests, but I trusted her. I'd forget about Selden if I could. Maybe tomorrow I'd play some lemmings or exile on the quadra. Maybe I'd find somewhere to spend that twenty I got from the gutter. I'd try anyway. And maybe tomorrow I'd talk to Dad about something that wasn't Andy or her death. Maybe letting go was something I did need to learn. I fell asleep thinking of the fire, the stench of the smoke as it rose through the branches. It had been dark and solid, and it went straight up disappeared against the sky, until only the absence of stars told me that it was there. I fell asleep thinking of absence, Selden and Andy, and a way of knowing the future, and then I was out, and I don't remember my dreams. And welcome back. We bought this story a couple months back, scheduled it, and that was that. And then a few weeks ago, the shooting in Tucson, Arizona occurred. Whenever I think about the losses people endured there, I'm forced to reflect on what's important. On lives cut short, like Andy's in this story, without any logic and without any reasoning. Loved ones are gone and we have to move on. Talking is hard, so is processing it. But when we experience something like that, searching for understanding is necessary, even if we're never able to come up with the answers. Tell the people you love that you love them, and live the life you want to live. For me, personally, listening to Chris Reed-On's story helped me process some of what was going on in my own head, helped me grieve for people I'd never met but whose loss troubled me, and I'd like to personally thank both of them for that. We asked Anna if there was anything she wanted to share with our audience about this one, and she told us, The idea for this story came from a challenge that Matthew Hershoff of the Fangs of God writing group gave me. That is, to reinterpret D.H. Lawrence's The Rocking Horse Winner, using a modern game like Madden Football or World of Warcraft. Somewhere over the course of writing, the modern game turned into a text-only adventure game like Zork, which hasn't really been modern since the 1980s. And then the game aspect got subsumed entirely. 
Okay, let's shift gears now and do some feedback from Michael J. Jasper and Craig Van Eekout's California King, read by yours truly. The story about a superhero, or as Eitan said, perhaps just a mythic figure, who finds himself at a crossroads in his career. This one receives somewhat of a mixed response from our audience. To all of you who didn't like it, there's a certain song I'd like to sing. Nah, nah, feedback were the kings, nah, nah, feedback. Yi Ching said, I felt the father-son dichotomy would have been interesting if taken further and evolved, but evil father-slash-rebellious-son enmity felt a little bit too cliché and forced. If there was more to the story, I think it would have made for some nice flavor, but having the entire story centered on this theme just really felt preachy to me, like the authors are trying to shove a metaphor down our throats. Electric Paladin disagreed and said, Hail to the king, baby. I love stories that are about a sense of place. I love the idea of California's kings. The whole fucked up, mismatched, dysfunctional family of them down through the ages. The story made me wonder about the rest of the hierarchy. Is there an emperor of the United States somewhere in D.C.? Is there a baron of the Bay Area, a lord of Los Angeles, a Caesar of the Central Valley who owe fealty to the king of their state? Could the lesser nobility of the state overthrow the rightful king or help a better heir and seat his jerk daddy early? The possibilities are endless. I also thought this story struck a balance between the references we all love and too many references we all love. In fact, in most things, pacing, language, themes, the story was extremely well done. I enjoyed it hugely. Thank you very much for those comments, and hey... Somebody get Michael J. Jasper and Greg Van Eek out on the Bay Area Baron and Lord of Los Angeles ASAP. Got it? We do love hearing your thoughts on these stories. If you have time, head over to forum.escapeartist.net and get in on the discussion. And while we're talking about the forums, why don't we say hello to Taliana Aussie Cat, our new forum moderators who are stepping in to take over for Bill Peters, who's gone on to bigger and better things at Escape Pod. Thanks very much, Talia and Aussie Cat, for all you're doing, and welcome to Team Podcastle. If you like the stories you're hearing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcastle from experiencing a systems crash, so if you can help out, thanks. It means a lot to us. If you can't, why not boot up your computers, blog, tweet, or just tell a friend about us? Thanks. That's our show for this week. Thanks for letting all of us here at PodCastle share another story with you. We'll be back next time with a bloody valentine from MLN Hanover, also known as Daniel Abraham. Until then, live, and we'll see you next week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. John Adams said, Grief drives men into habits of serious reflection sharpens the understanding, and softens the heart.